Hello, and welcome to the 42nd episode of the LA Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law, and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 42nd episode is Daniel A. Johnston Esquire, an attorney with a concentration in criminal defense, personal injury, and business and consumer litigation. Dan's motto is, call me when you're arrested, injured, or ripped off. Dan has been a popular guest on our show for the 4th, 14th, and 28th episodes and is backed by popular demand. If you missed any of those shows, you want to be sure to go back and check them out. Dan is a former prosecutor in the Nassau County District Attorney's Office who also handled civil litigation defense matters in large New York City firms. Dan's practice focuses on helping individuals and small businesses when it matters most. Please check out the show notes for a full description of Dan Johnston's credentials and contact information. Please also keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Okay, so Dan, we have a lot of timely and important topics to discuss today. Our first topic is the elimination of cash bail for defendants facing misdemeanor and nonviolent felony charges in every county of New York State, which went into effect January 1st, 2020. Now the ability to make bail will no longer be the determining factor for pretrial detention for defendants who have not yet been found guilty of any crime. There has been a great deal of pushback due to purported increasing crime rates, especially by the very defendants who were just released without bail. Was this change in the bail law a good thing or not? Are released defendants committing crimes while not in jail and awaiting their day in court? And are Nassau County Executive Curran and Governor Cuomo, both of whom pushed for this change, experiencing buyer's remorse? What do you think? I think that the bail system as it was set up previously did need fixing, but this legislation would appear to have pushed the pendulum too far back the other direction. And I would say that the legislators who put this bill into practice uh, may be beginning to have that buyer's remorse. Uh, When you have New York City officials, including even de Blasio, taking note that crime rates have in fact increased, you don't have to ponder whether or not they are. If the if the people who are furthest left who supported this bill are admitting, yes, crime rates are going up, then yes, crime rates are going up. So wait, I want to ask you, are crime rates going up because defendants in, in cases are being released and then are going out and committing more crimes? Are the, is this recidivism, a repeat crime? I think it's two things, and this is pure speculation, but one of them is especially when it comes to petty crimes, people are feeling emboldened. They know they're not going to be facing bail. They know they're not going to spend the next few months in lockup awaiting trial. So when they're making that risk-reward analysis in their head, all of a sudden it's tilting towards go for it. And when you have people who are showing up on petty crimes and they're being released, what are you telling them? You're basically saying, if you come back, we're going to let you go. They had the guy who was in the paper multiple times. He committed four different bank robberies, but he did it with a note, so it wasn't violent. And you know what he did when they let him out on bail for the fourth one? He went immediately back out and robbed a fifth bank. It's gone too far the other direction. And while the ideas behind this change in the law are noble and were much needed, it's pushed it too far. It's the wild, wild west out there. There's no incentive for people to 
follow the rules and to return to court and to do the things they're supposed to do because there's no longer a stick. And the I, I, there's ideas put forth by de Blasio in New York City about, well, we'll give them a carrot then with Nick's tickets and other things. But it's, this is the criminal justice system. It's someone has committed a crime, allegedly. But the reality is if there's, an, if there's a track record where someone has a record and it shows they've had 10 different failures to appear, they've been charged with multiple different felonies, they've fled the state before, but the crime they committed this time doesn't fit the bail requirements, they're letting them out the door. There was a very recent case, and it was with a judge who I very much like, Judge McAndrews, where a gentleman was arrested for some kind of fairly serious crime, but it didn't meet the bail requirements. The judge just said, I'm looking at your record, and I find that you've been a menace to society, and I don't care what it says, I'm putting 10000 on you. Of course, it was immediately overturned, and they did stick a, an electronic monitoring system on his leg, and within a week, he cut it off, and he warranted again. Again, the, the ideas behind the bill were well-founded, but the execution has not been there, and it's not working. So I want to ask you two questions based upon what you just said. The first is, are people not showing up when they're released without bail because there is no bail, so there's no incentive, there's no financial incentive to show up? Are people just not showing up for their court dates? So what happens to a defendant who is released without bail and doesn't show up in court on the on the return date? Well, as it stands now, there's now a requirement that if the, a defendant fails to show up on his scheduled court date, the judge, pretty much regardless of circumstances, especially at the misdemeanor level, has to give the defendant 48 more hours to appear before they can even issue a warrant. And when they do issue a warrant and the person's picked up and brought before the judge, they're still not allowed to set bail. So they have to let them walk right out. If you look at this from the perspective of someone who's been charged with petty crimes, especially someone who has a record and you know is going to face ultimately consequences for their actions, uh, the game theory optimal move there is just don't come back to court. Because when you come back, when they warrant, the DA is going to put their file away on what's in what's called the warrant room. And no one's going to look at it until the guy is brought back before court. The day he's picked up and brought back before court, the DA is going to adjourn it because they need to get their file. And what's going to happen on the next day when they have their file? Defendant's not going to be there. And this will just continue in a cycle uh, until who knows when. So what purpose is there to coming back to court? So it does seem like this, the pendulum has swung too far. But I want to ask you, what about... The argument that many people make that someone should not be in jail before he or she has been convicted of a crime. So here we have these serial petty criminals, right, that we're talking about who are in and out of the system and they don't show up. But what about someone who is actually not a serial uh, criminal and should be released? I mean, isn't it fair to to give a person the benefit of the doubt before conviction? Why imprison them? I'm not at all advocating for a system that imprisons everybody before trial. Not at all. And the reality of the situation is, if it's someone who's just made a mistake, or it's someone who doesn't have any prior contacts with the criminal justice system, the reality is, under the old system, they still would have been let out. There was no requirement that bail be set on every crime. And in fact, most misdemeanors would have been ROR, which is you get to walk out the door and come back on your next court date, which is what we're dealing with now. Release on recognizance. Yes. Yep. Then there was CRP, which is a conditional release to probation. Just means you have to check in with probation at the court and they keep an eye on you while you're out. And then, yes, there was the potential for bail to be set. Um, I, I think where the sweet spot is on this issue is to make it so that most of these petty crimes 
cannot have bail set, but to expand it to allow for at least some judicial discretion, where you do have the cases of people who are evidently and clearly playing the system, where the judge does have the ability to put a stop to it. Because under the laws as they are as of 2020, the judges have their, are handcuffed. There, there's little to nothing they can do with a defendant who doesn't want to be there. If they warrant, they show back up, and then they're released. And what happens next? They warrant. And there's just no way to get around that. Okay. Um, you can assign electronic monitoring and these other stopgap measures that are short of bail, but it's really not that hard to get a pair of bolt cutters and snip it right off. So that's a good segue into my next question, which is some New York state legislators see that there's a problem and they're calling for tracking the federal system, whereby a defendant is either jailed or monitored by the court system in the manner you suggested, whether an ankle bracelet or otherwise, or released on his own recognizance. What do you think of that plan? Is that going to be more effective? It depends on how you implement. New York State does not have the resources that the federal government has. So no matter what program they implement trying to track the federal system, it's not going to be as robust. It's not going to be as well run. Additionally, simply adding in the option for electronic monitoring actually isn't all that different from the laws as they are now. In a number of situations under the current law, you don't have to set bail. You can put, and you don't have to let them go either. You can put on electronic monitoring. They get an ankle bracelet. That's something that exists in the current set up. So what we see, Dan, is the current system isn't working, and the suggestions by the New York State legislators, they're not really feasible either for the reasons you've mentioned. So do you have another option or, or a suggestion? There should be a system that does have restrictions on what crimes bail can be set on, but there has to be a carve-out to allow for judicial discretion in certain circumstances. Maybe you can word it as if the defendant has three or more prior failures to appear, in that exception bail can be set. Or if other aggravating circumstances are present within the crime, or there's a history of them either committing prior offenses that evidence that they're not going to come back to court, like bail jumping or something like that. If there's certain circumstances, the judge should be granted some discretion to set bail. Okay. And as a criminal defense attorney, how do you see this new bail law affecting your practice as well as your interactions with the district attorneys? The bail law, in terms of interacting with the district attorneys, has not been as significant of an issue as the new discovery laws. That's a whole different bag okay. of worms. We're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but in terms of the criminal practice, I would say that it certainly seems like the level of urgency has been curtailed. So the phone is not ringing as much with newer cases because of the fact that if there's no bail set and they just have a date that they may or may not show up to, it doesn't really incentivize people to take the initiative and get to work handling and resolving their matter. Mm -hmm. So for now, I would say that it has affected my practice in that, at least as it pertains to petty crimes, less people are making the call and starting to try and resolve their case. It hasn't affected the major crimes at all. People with serious crimes are still calling. I think what's going to ultimately happen is once it gets right around mid-year this year, I think the phones are going to start ringing off, off the hook because people are going to show up to court and push it down the road and not deal with it now, and eventually there's just going to be trial dates set, and people are going to realize, oh, whoops, 
I need an attorney. And, and by that point, maybe they've lost an opportunity to find witnesses or do other investigation to help their case, right? Because so much time has passed. Several of the laws regarding discovery have changed lately, but the laws governing when certain motions can be made and certain uh, investigative techniques can be performed, those are still in effect. You have to have someone to look at the evidence that's been presented against you, especially in conjunction with the new discovery law. You get them much sooner, which means the clock is ticking on how soon you can file a number of different motions. If you fail to challenge uh, an identification procedure, a statement, uh, a number of different things that could potentially win your case, those are gone by the time you're on the eve of trial. Mm -hmm. So that false sense of confidence is, is really misplaced. Yes, it's doing damage to not bring in an attorney as early as you can in a criminal matter. Okay, so let's talk about that mandatory 15-day discovery rule, which has also been instituted, whereby prosecutors have only 15 days from arrest to turn over evidence against a defendant, including police reports, photographs, recordings, and witness information to the defense. Do you see the uh, assistant di district attorneys complying with this law, and how is it affecting your practice? Not in a single misdemeanor case. We are midway through February of 2020. Once the DA has, in fact, turned over everything that they have within the 15 days, they're supposed to file a certificate of compliance that tells the judge and the court that they've complied with the new requirements. They can't be ready for trial until they've filed that certificate. It is now February 20th. I have not, in a single case, had a certificate of compliance filed. So what are the consequences to an ADA who does not give over the discovery within the 15-day period? The clock starts running against them. That's at minimum. And when I say the clock starts running against them, I mean the speedy trial clock. Because if they have not so filed the certificate of compliance, that means by law they cannot be ready for trial. The yeah, but the are they precluded from presenting this, uh, this evidence or this, uh, um, whether it's photographs or reports, are they precluded? No, at least not as of yet. We still, we're in brave new territory here. Um, a lot of, this is what a lot of the judges are having to struggle with, is what is the appropriate remedy? It's not, a lot of it is not spelled out. One of the few things that is spelled out, and in pretty strong language for a criminal statute, most of them leave a little bit of ambiguity so that the judges can work with them. The new discovery law states very specifically that notwithstanding the provisions of any other law, in the absence of a certificate of compliance, the people cannot be ready for trial. So what that means is come maybe mid-March to early April, I expect that you're going to see a wave of cases just getting dismissed because the district attorneys are overburdened and, and they can't, they just can't get out all this information. They don't have the systems in place. Do you see more hiring? Are, are more ADAs being hired? I haven't seen more ADAs being hired, at least not frontline ADAs. Whether or not that means they have some more backroom personnel that are being hired, I don't know. What I do know is it's causing at least Nassau County and Suffolk County to modernize their infrastructure. Discovery used to be all based on paper, and they would give you you know, a small stack of documents for their initial discovery, and then just prior to a hearing or trial, which is, which is when you would get the bulk of the real material, which is what this law was trying to fix, uh, everything would be in paper. Now, defense attorneys uh, who are frequently in these courts, such as myself, the district attorney has set up an online cloud system where what will happen now is instead of being provided a paper copy and having it put on the record in court that it's being handed over, they're putting all of the discovery materials on 
this server that the, de the defense attorneys have to make a login and a password and they'll get a notification once their case's discovery has gone up and then they'll have the opportunity to download it. Okay, since you're mentioning the cloud, I'm wondering, can anyone hack into that? Do we know if there are security? It would be very hard. It would, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, it would be very difficult. They've done it the right way. Um, I won't say what uh, brand or service they're using for the server for security reasons, but it's a very solid, reputable server. And then within, you have to log in first to this very reputable company who they're using, and then you, on a secondary basis, have to log into their subsection of that server. So it seems to be a, a pretty well under lock and key. Okay, interesting. So to come back to the 15-day discovery rule, it sounds like the purpose for which the uh, the rule was made is not really being fulfilled. They're trying. That's all I can say at this point. To say that they're not filing the certificates of compliance is not to say that they haven't been turning over materials. The problem is they don't have the systems in place to verify that they have in fact turned over everything, mm -hmm. which includes an outdated system regarding 911 calls, radio runs from the police, which are present in just about, I'd say the majority of misdemeanor cases. It's usually arrests being made by officers from squad cars and things like that. So it's very difficult for them to absolutely certify they have turned everything over when they have to either put in a request for certain types of documents or records and they have to investigate whether they have turned everything over and it's very difficult for them to comply. I, I don't necessarily envy the, the assistant district attorneys having to abide this new law. It seems like it'd be very difficult. Okay, but as a defense attorney, does that give you room to move to dismiss or, or file whatever uh, um, motions you want to? Does that strengthen your position? Oh, it's wonderful. It's great. Okay. Um, just looking at it from a, a very self-centered lens, it's fantastic. A number of cases are coming up now. Since this law took effect in January, to my reading of the law, in the cases that were pre-existing, the, the certificates of compliance should have been turned over by January 15th. So there, there's going to be criminal Christmas come you know, late, late March, early April. On top of that, all of these cases where they're failing to turn over the discovery, there's always something for me to pick at and pull at in the new law. So if they do file a certificate of compliance, I've had cases where they've said that they've turned things over online, they believe they're in compliance, but they want to double check before they file a certificate. I can take one look at the file and say, well, I see on the police report that there was a detective involved. I know that if there's a detective involved, he has a case jacket. There's no case jacket on the online file, so you can't be in compliance. There's always something to, knit, to pick at. There's cases where uh, that require medical records, where just even the process of getting them can be a, a several-month-long process, and that's not entirely their fault. Right. But if, if you're charging my client with assault and you're saying that there was a serious injury and you're intending to prove it only through medical records, you better get me the records. Mm -hmm. And if it's not done within the 90 days, the case is done. Okay, and as you you and I were discussing today, I, earlier before the podcast, I saw today an advertisement uh, against this discovery rule um, in which it noted that a witness in an MS-13 uh, gang incident or, or criminal case, a witness was killed. And there's been a great deal of discussion about protections for witnesses and how this rule really may be preventing people from stepping forward to report crimes because they were being afraid, they're afraid of being outed. Could you speak to that? 
Sure. It's a difficult issue because I am able to see both sides of the coin on this. Um, on one, on the on the one hand, if you're being charged with a crime, at the very minimum, you should be able to investigate the person who's making the allegations against you. Uh, Isn't that co- confrontation of your accuser? Ultimately, that really only applies once you're sitting at trial and the person takes a stand. You have the right to cross-examine their testimony, and everything up until trial is, is sort of amorphous. There's not technically testimony against you other than reviewing for sufficiency the accusatory instrument. The confrontation clause only applies to once you're at trial. You have the ability to cross-examine the what's being said against you. That's also the the origins of the hearsay rule and everything else. They can't introduce evidence without uh, having the person be subject to cross-examination. So that's where the confrontation clause comes in. On the other hand, when you have cases where you're dealing with dangerous people, these things, there are dangerous people out there who do bad things. And in cases where you have violent gang members who now with the new discovery laws can get their hands on contact information for witnesses. I mean, that is a, that can be a recipe for disaster. Uh, the case with the MS-13 member and the witness being killed is a tragedy. And it raises a question that I'm somewhat tentative to get into. But the reason this happened is because in the new law, it's provided automatically unless there's a motion for a protective order for the witness's information. And in that specific case, there had been a protective order in place that was preventing the witness's name from being released. And then sometime in December, uh, the protective order either lapsed or ceased to apply or wasn't reapplied for. And that was when the information was given. So I don't want to play the blame game unnecessarily, especially when I wasn't involved in the case and I don't know all the ins and outs. It just seems that there is something amiss there because there is a provision where you can get a protective order for just that kind of case. So the fact that one stopped being in place is a mystery to me, uh, having read that in the paper. Right, but in any case, as a witness, I think I would think twice before stepping up to report a crime, especially if I'm concerned for my safety. And that's it for our 42nd episode. Thank you, Daniel Johnston, for coming back on the podcast today. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The LA Law Podcast is your source for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.